I have no idea how to open whatever this is going to be, but I guess I we should start with a disclaimer. If you are here looking for well-thought-out, constructed thoughts about Endwalker, you're going to have to wait about a year and a half. Because uh, th- this one's hot off the presses. This is this is fresh. Yeah, about, about as fresh as we could put together. To be fair, we, we've both finished the game more than a couple days ago, but, uh, but these are pretty fresh thoughts, and uh, there's not really any concise structure to any of this. We're just going to talk about the expansion for, like, however long it takes for us to talk about it. Um, by the way, immediate, like obvious spoiler warning this is like oh yeah if you haven't finished in walker don't don't listen to this really don't listen to this like my god we're gonna be talking about everything uh so if either if you continue forward either you don't care about spoilers or you have already finished and if you if you're not either one of those things leave right now yeah you can come you can come back to us after you uh after you finish the uh the 79 hour long expansion yeah well now that we've we've removed all those people i guess we should start with wow video game huh yeah it's extremely a video game um i i've said this to uh to a lot of our friends um but i i feel like uh endwalker is the gulf in quality between Shadowbringers and Endwalker, and for the record, Shadowbringers is one of my favorite like games of all time. Um, the gulf in quality is the same size between Shadowbringers and Endwalker to me as the gulf in quality is between ARR and Shadowbringers, which is a pretty big gulf in quality. And I would say I do not necessarily go that far because uh, ARR and Shadowbringers. Might as well be two different games. But I also think Endwalker and Shadowbringers might as well be two different games as well. Um, I generally think that Shadowbringers is better paced and tells its story just plot-wise slightly better. Endwalker goes so incredibly hard in on its characters and themes, though, that it, like... I don't really care about any of the minor pacing issues I have with it at all. Um, like, yeah, there are some bits that go on for a while, but I I couldn't really give less of a shit, honestly, when once I got to the end. Yeah, exactly. Like, there, there are some minor pacing issues. Um, like, Shadowbringers is uh, very tight. I, I find that, that story to be uh, very, very tightly assembled. Um, and a big part of why that is, of course, is the fact that Shadowbringers is such a self-contained story. It's, um, you know, Heaven's Word and Shadowbringers both really benefit from the fact that they are extremely isolated from the rest of the game. They kind of get to tell their own story in their own location without having to deal with any of the baggage associated with the rest of the game, so that they get to really just sort of concentrate on the things that are important um and walker doesn't really have this luxury because it has to wrap up the story for like 10 plus years of a video game i think it has a different luxury though it has the luxury of being able to pull on absolutely everything that has happened before it 
and they use that to their fullest extent pretty much anyone you can think of pretty much shows up in this game to some degree or another there are there are plenty of callbacks like if you're just one of the people who wants to look at the screen and point when you recognize something you're gonna love endwalker because there's a lot of things that show up from earlier in the game but it's more than that i mean it's also like this this discussion is gonna be messy i want to start here which is i think that it makes perfect sense that the team as they are now made this game because endwalker is so much about the legacies you leave behind and the meaning of a life's work in the face of death and i just for some reason i just feel as though after 11 years working on this game a lot of the people behind the scenes are thinking about that in relation to this i mean Naoki Yoshida called this his life's work uh, this past fan fest. This is something he is extremely proud of. I imagine that the a lot of the themes in this game were particularly resonant for him as well as, as a few other people. So, yeah. Uh, I think that these themes are like very near and dear to the heart of the team uh, as a whole. I think that like there's there's a lot of careful consideration of the legacy of the game i think in in endwalker not necessarily in a way that's like overtly textual but it's definitely something that you see a lot of um a really good example of this actually is the roll quests now the roll quests are a little different in uh in endwalker um in in there's more of them they split physical range dps off into its own branch <clears throat> they did so they split that off so there there is technically one more role quest um and unlike shadowbringers it's not really as integrated as uh as those role quests were of course those you had to do one to actually progress in the story and that was also how you got your job gear it's not really how it works in endwalker the only thing that doing the role quest actually does for you is it removes the dialogue on the job gear that you get so you can you can die it after you finish it which is interesting um but they're not really required content anymore um but the thing that's interesting about them in this context is that they are all very focused on sort of the consequences of where the game has been um uh, the caster roll quest, for example, uh, takes place in Ishgard, and it's dealing with sort of the socio-political fallout of removing the Orthodox Church from a position of power. You know, you've you've got this situation where the citizens don't really trust the church anymore, and it creates this situation where um, you have uh, people who are basically losing their their faith entirely and then you have other people who want to try and preserve it in any way they can and this leads them to like kind of going back and trying to resurrect thordan and and trying to like put things back the way they were when things were good which you know obviously that's kind of a theme of the expansion uh but uh but yeah i mean you have vatican they they host a vatican two over it it's really it's really interesting like i i like the idea of um of going back 
to these sort of legacy issues that have been brought up in the game that haven't really been addressed. Um, and, and they took the time to really carefully consider like what the sort of path forward would be in, in a, in an Eorzea that like is trying to move forward. And I think that's really interesting. Similarly, the melee role quests take place in Limsa Lamensa and focus on the maelstrom uh, negotiating with the Sahagan, uh, specifically Merlewib herself and you going to talk to the Sahagan. Uh, and there is a group of like splinter uh, Sahagan called the Crushing Tide, who, and this is very important because this is not how the Beast Tribe quest went at all. They are not tempered in any way. They have already been cured of, of Leviathan's tempering. They are simply, like, still dissatisfied with the steps that Lumsa Lamenta has taken in reparations, basically. And, and, and still believe in, in expanding their spawning grounds outwards. I haven't played that far in the role quest, but so far, that is the thing I wanted from 5.4, where you see Merleweb make peace with the kobolds is that i wanted to see that with the sahagan as well because i feel as though they almost got an even worse off deal with the maelstrom than the kobolds did so seeing this is and is very interesting and it, it shows that one thing this game is giving it an opportunity to do is to go back to older plot threads especially all the way back in a realm reborn where perhaps the writing was a bit bad when it came to the racial and societal dynamics between uh, the, 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 the grand cities of Eorzea and the quote-unquote beast tribes. Um, yeah. Where they were almost entirely othered in A Realm Reborn, even when in their respective quests, you were always working for a splinter faction of them. The quote-unquote the good ones, right? But here... They are committed to fully uniting Eorzea and and trying to repay reparations for these these decades of strife that they have caused, and so that's interesting. Another thing that's interesting that ties into that is the first big new area that you encounter, um, which is Thavnair, and of course that might sound familiar for anyone who has bought particularly slutty clothing off of the market board, but. Now, that's more than what... Thavnir means more than that, uh, since we've been there. And Thavnir is fascinating to me, because it almost feels like they are taking another swing at Alamigo for a variety of reasons. Um, I mean, uh, the, the the most obvious one is it's, it's a sort of arid uh, locale. But also, it has a lot of thematic similarities with what they attempted... In Stormblood, and also in A Realm Reborn, but kind of kind of swung swung and missed at because Thavnair is a place where uh, myriad tribes have always been integrated. There is no separation and no like structural system to keep them apart because the you have Ara here, and I can never remember the Akasadora. Akashadora? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Aroxadora. Aroxadora. Big old elephant people. All live together. Um, and have done so basically since the nation's in- inception. 
um, which is fascinating that we have never heard a, a, a single peep of, of Thavnir throughout this whole game. Yeah, especially considering Thavnir is like a fairly large trading city. Like, like the the actual nation of Thavnir is like very, very important to global trade as both like sort of a port in the middle of the not quite Indian Ocean and the bounty like, is what they call it. Yeah, the bounty. Like it's it's a really important trading port. It basically connects all of Ilsabard to Eorzea and uh, uh, Othard. It's like kind of the primary waypoint since, you know, trade routes probably aren't super safe going through the Garlean Empire. I can't imagine that uh that they're they're super jazzed about that whole thing. So, you know, you think we've heard a little bit about them beforehand, but you know, I they, they, they were a little more concerned with other stuff at the time, I guess. But yeah, Thavnir is I I think it, it's very much its own thing. But I do think there are definitely a lot of aspects of it that feel very much like uh, kind of an attempt number two at some of the sort of broad strokes at what Alamigo kind of attempted to be, um, which is good. Because I, I think that, um, you know, one of the biggest failures, I think, of Stormblood beyond like, there, there's a lot of failures of Stormblood, but beyond a lot of the sort of specific things i i think one of the broader failures is the fact that alamigo really fails to feel like a place um quite the same way as a lot of places in eorzea do um it just doesn't really get the same amount of i think attention and and, and this is this is a result of like kind of i think the way that the X-Pack is actually structured, and also because the sort of storyline is focused in a way that makes it difficult for them to really flesh out Alamigo as a place quite as easily. Meanwhile, I have an extremely good grasp on Thavnir's society, culture, what people there find important, geography style like Thavnir is an extremely well-realized place um and i think we should start with its head of state because that is probably one of the most interesting things about it is its governmental system uh which is that it uh is led by a satrap who is sort of the, the it, it is it is governed by a, a council of various people representing the the concerns of the citizenry and then there's the satrap who is kind of the the guide of compromise and and sort of deal making here between these various parties when a problem arises they will turn to the satrap and he will help them hash it out now this the thing about the satrap is is that he's a dragon and his name is Vritra. he is a member of the first brood yeah which is wild it's it's pretty wild so yeah like thavnir and Rodzahan specifically, it's it's got a very interesting way of of doing governance. I I find it very interesting. Like you have this almost like a parliamentarian system, um, where the 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 satrap sort of fills this like 
just sort of this executive role. It's hard to say like what the direct analog would be. I guess a prime minister is the closest thing, and it's it's very interesting. Like I quite I quite like it's sort of a halfway between like a speaker of the house and and uh and a prime minister and the the way that they sort of handle that is is very interesting because it seems like uh the the executive branch as it were sort of operates in a way where like the satrap like controls the radiant host which is like the military but isn't necessarily like the person who makes law it's 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 very interesting like i quite like how it's structured and of course yes the the satrap is actually vritra um who has spent a very long time sort of operating under the guise of the dragon ally uh, to the Satrap, um, who right now is a man named, I believe, uh, Asawan. Ahawan. 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 And Ahawan is like a member of a family of Aura who had uh, basically been, been serving as sort of i guess you could say like assistance to vritra for a very very long time and uh and he's like he he pretends to actually be the satrap uh to the to the actual people of of Radzenhan, which is it is it's interesting to see like how that evolves over the course uh of endwalker while you're in Radzenhan, because you start getting these like vibes <clears throat> that something weird's going on. Like, um, Estinian doesn't really seem to trust uh, this little boy who's, like, the sort of assistant to to Ahawan. And, um, like, the, the government seems to be just, like, a little... Everyone trusts it just a little bit too much. Like, maybe there's something wrong going on here. And it turns out there is, like, weird stuff going on, but it's not actually malicious, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, so Vritra is one of my favorite, like, new characters out of this expansion. Probably my favorite. Because he and Astinian, he and Astinian are so tied together and, and is such a great, like, vector for some of Astinian's character development in, the, in this expansion, which is just wonderful. Um, because, okay, so Vritra is, is, is hiding in secret and, and secretly being the satrap, not because, like there's any sinister reason it's because of the dragon song war and he is absolutely terrified of bringing any of that business to razad han because whereas all of his other brood siblings you know nidhog race velger tiamat all of them uh settled in very isolated places and didn't really interact with humans uh or or, or the peoples of the land or what what have you for you know, any prolonged period of time, Vritra uh, landed on Thavnair and made his home there and quickly found that it would be, it was populated by uh, the Arkadosa first, then the Aura came and, and, and of course there was conflict. Um, but Vritra was always the one who would step in and stop things from spiraling out of control. And so he came to love uh, the mortals uh, of this island and then came to share a close bond with them. And when he heard about, uh, you know, Ratatoskar's murder at the hands of, of the uh, the Ishgardian nobles, 
he was he was he was saddened but he was like he he did not want to bring war to the shores of thavnir and so he receded into the background and created this dragon ally story he had one of his eyes fashioned into an extremely lifelike mammoth so that he could wander among the people as varshan his uh his the the satraps you know manservant basically there and that's where you find him at the start but by the end of the expansion vritra is openly the head of state of razat han he is he is entreating with charlian and all the other various countries and uh the the people accept him as as their beloved leader he's he's a dragon and he look he is a big fucking dragon make no mistake he is a member of the first brood but he's just the president, basically, and that's wonderful. That's wonderful. He's the dragon president, and everyone loves him. And to be fair, like, so, uh, and one thing one thing I really like, actually, is um, after uh, Ahawan, unfortunately, gets murdered in a really brutal fashion, by the way, um, and he has to sort of take up the, the mantle um, for the people, he he's really anxious about the idea of, like, introducing more like strife into the lives of his people like he's very worried that they're all going to be like deeply afraid of him like beyond the whole like suddenly his nation becomes a target because people want the power of the dragons he's also like very worried that the the whole you know people who get very scared turn into horrible monsters thing um would be exacerbated by him showing up um, but really, it, it does exactly the opposite. Everyone's like, oh, wow, our president is, like, one of the most powerful creatures in the entire world, uh, and is really nice, and also way huger and scarier than any of the other monsters. We're, we're pretty cool with this. We should actually talk about the plot of this expansion, because it's important. Um, it's a little the bit final important. days are here. Which is that? That's the headline. The final days are here. However, that's doesn't really tell you anything. So, obviously, Fandaniel and Xenos were positioned to set in motion the cogs that would bring about the final days. But you would expect, you know, a lot of the expansion to be about, you know, fighting various big monsters uh, to to stop the final days through brute force. But really. There's not much of that at all. No, not really. The, f- the final days, the mechanics of the final days are finally revealed. Um, and it, it all revolves around a new, you know, kind of unknown, f- pretty much freshly introduced uh, magical substance called Akasha by certain scholars of Thavnir, or, and it was as it was known to the ancients, Dynamis. Um, which is a, a an invisible, like, unmanipulatable sort of stream of magic, very similar to ether, that responds to emotions. Uh, it's spiral energy. Um, if you've ever seen Gurren Lagann, it is pretty much, it is pretty much spiral energy. Yeah, it's like, it's very interesting. So it's like... The the reason that Limit Break exists, so I, I always like when, when the game does this, like, uh... One of my favorite things that they did um, in 
Shadowbringers and specifically post Shadowbringers is the introduction of the in-universe explanation for the duty finder which is that um the seed of azam uh provides you with a very particular incantation that was developed by the original azam which is literally duty finder it is you call seven people to show up out of nowhere um and they just sort of teleport in and help you out it's like pretty hilarious and uh really really cool that that's like it is it is the canonical explanation for why you the player just get seven people to show up whenever you get to beat down a big monster and similarly this is why limit breaks happen because of dynamis you know you uh are able to sort of harness this uh sort of raw emotional energy that sort of uh, that's sort of uh, in the background of the whole universe, and you're able to use it to sort of transcend your limits very briefly, um, and and stuff like that, because it's it's entirely dictated by emotion, and and that's cool. The other thing that's really hilarious is like the way that Dynamis like interacts with the sort of world building of Final Fantasy XIV because. The Hubble constant exists. The, like, literally Dynamis' dark energy. It is just the... It is the force that is driving the expansion of the universe. Yeah, it is... It is the the weaker invisible force that is... It, that is woven into Aether and is sort of pushing it apart, is how they explain it. And, you know, there there's a big portion of the game dedicated to explaining it. Because it was extremely important uh, for the end. And, you know, also thematically, obviously, Dynamis, once again, Spiral Energy. Uh, this is a game, as I said, about finding meaning in life uh, in the face of death. And specifically facing down entropy and nihilism. I would say through the power of friendship, but that almost feels cheap. Uh, I love, You know I love the power of friendship and found family. But this game goes so much harder on it than that. Like, it is not just that, it is, like, human connection against, like, the dark, basically. Um, So, you don't know who the villain of this expansion is for roughly two-thirds of it. Because it is not Fandaniel. It is not Xenos. It is not anyone we've ever actually met before. The villain of this expansion is Medeon. It's a little and bird, I, a a a little girl with bird with uh, bird legs and and wings in her on her head, and she was created long ago by Hermes, the man who would who would become Fandaniel of the Convocation of Fourteen, as a being who could interact with Dynamis directly, who could truly connect with people's emotions and and very deeply understand she's an intellecty a being of pure empathy um and i'm jumping around here i'm 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 at elpis now which is about half a little over halfway through the game but it's a very important section of the game where you travel back in time to find out what has what brought hermes slash fandaniel to this suicidal like omnicidal despair that involved him uh in saying the final days and what you learn is that in the time of the ancients 
their relationship to death was exceedingly different than anything else we've seen because they're pretty much immortal and ageless i i think um but the basic society is structured around basically once you have fulfilled your life's purpose you return to the star that is how things worked in the world of Amarant. Yeah, and it wasn't like a forced thing. You could choose not to. Very specifically, Vinat chose to not do this. But, but it was like, kind of a faux pas to choose to not do it. Everyone was kind of like side-eyeing her a little bit, and she was a bit of a rebel for it. Yeah, um, it's 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 kind of... It's it's a very it's a very weird choice to make in that society. Like you, you yeah, should want okay. to return to the life stream. Yeah. Um. And yeah. So that there are certain people like Vina who chose not to. Um. But because of this, you know, and the fact that the ancients could use creation magics and were thus basically, they they thought that their mission was to improve the star was to serve the star and help it reach perfection and once whatever they were doing to do that there that had been had been done they returned to the life stream uh hermes was the chief researcher at elpis which was a is, is a massive testing ground for basically making animals um they were they were they were in the spore character creator and they were just making shit that whole time and a lot and of sharks to, a lot of sharks uh, and they were trying to see if w- what would make it what would be a good thing to add to the ecosystem of the star which may strike you hey that's a little weird yes it is a little weird um hermes thought so as well because the thing about it is if a creation didn't pan out if it had a, a, an issue with it that that the ancients didn't like they would kill it um and he had a really hard time squaring his emotions of all life being sacred with that fact that like these creatures never got a chance to see their potential and yet the ancients got to decide when they were done like they they got to choose whenever their potential was fulfilled but he felt as though he was the only person who had these thoughts he um the the society of the ancients seemed to be basically perfect uh upon first glance but of course no society is and so hermes kept all of these thoughts to himself uh and and instead created Meteon, who was a, a, con- a construct made to, as I said, to interact with Dynamis. And from there started, she, he, cre- he made many of Meteons and started launching them into space because he wanted to know if there were other worlds, other stars out there who could help him understand why people live why what is the purpose of doing all of this work yeah he, um, he he wanted to he wanted to know like what is it that other people live for because um by and large the society ancients was structured in such a way as that living life in service of the star was sort of just the implicit through line for for everyone you 
really weren't allowed to be like an individual person like not necessarily by law but like just through sheer social pressure like everyone wore exactly the same outfit everyone wears masks pretty much identical masks unless you're part of the government um it you know stuff like this is like their society was entirely dedicated to sort of a utilitarian outlook of of things just a very like whatever the greatest possible good is for the greatest possible amount of life is the good that should be pursued no matter what the cost of that good is and you know of course you can sort of see the the consequences of that kind of outlook with the summoning of zodiac when things started going really poorly and they needed a solution their solution involved sacrificing billions of people uh to make a make a guy about it and like this was just an expected part of society that you would like you know if you drew the short straw you're gonna go into a big hole and die and become a big scary god with horns yeah and that the creation of zodiac is what saved the uh the world of the ancients from complete destruction it did forestall the final days by you know wrangling berserk creation magic but it wasn't a permanent solution and so this is when the sundering happened which we see happen in this game we see what brings venat to summon Heidelin and sunder the world into its various shards um but more i want to talk more about median because median is just an incredible character i think so when you first meet her she's this very awkward uh awkward seeming little girl who who seems to have a hard time communicating at least verbally because she can talk through emotions it's not like telepathy or anything she is literally just sending vibes your way and your mind is automatically translating the vibes that is what entelechies can do um and she just wants to know what makes everyone happy and and share people's joy and she also wants to help her friends feel better because she knows you know hermes might hide his pain from all of his 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 uh co-workers and whatnot but he she can't hide it from Medion. she she knows exactly how he feels yeah the the world's only depressed man invented a creature that (laughs) that is okay only capable of feeling his emotions at any time which i'm sure will will only produce good outcomes so you may wonder why the final days happened at first the explanation is that it was just a sort of freak natural occurrence of like weak celestial aether streams kind of interacting with the world um that is the starting theory that kryl has at the very start of the game it's also the theory that the ancients had um but it was incomplete yeah they didn't have they they never found out what happened you know because uh most of them were sundered so obviously you know the, the how this whole elpis thing starts is that you have to go to talk to the only remaining unsundered Asian, 
the fading soul of Elidibus trapped within the Crystal Tower on the first. Which rules, by the way, as a plot point. Yes. The fact that it's it, like, yeah, you have to go back to the first, and you have to go dredge Elidibus's soul out of the power batteries of the Crystal Tower. It rules. It's awesome. It's like... I, 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 I didn't know if we were actually going to go back to the first, and the fact that you do it all is, like, pretty nice. Like, I, I quite like it. It's a very short period of time, but it, it's nice. It's a very nice thing to be able to do. And so you go to Elidibus, and he tells you about Elpis, because the other thing is, there's so much to cover. I'm, I know I'm bouncing around, but Heidelin, at the very beginning of the game, through uh, a vision, gave, pointed you towards this flower. It is a glowing flower called Heart's Bloom by the people of Charlian that reacts to the emotions surrounding it. And she tells you that this flower is going to be extremely important. And the reason that is is because to the ancients it was called Elpis because that is where it was created on accident. They didn't mean to create a flower that could interact with Dynamis, they just did. So... Elidibus uses the power of time travel that the uh, that the Crystal Tower possesses to send you back. At first, of course, with all of the proper restrictions of you can't interact with anything, you can't talk to anyone, you just have to sit there and be a witness to events. This is thrown out the window immediately, which is great. I love it when time travel stories immediately throw a wrench into the works, because what happens is you get to Elpis... And then two people show up. One of them is a beautiful, lavender-haired twink. And the other one is young Xehanort from Kingdom Hearts. And this is Hythladeus and Emmet Selk. Yes. So, Elpis is a beautiful segment of the game. Um, both in terms of the environment and also in terms of all the things that happen in it. And yes, you go and hang out with Hythladeus Emmet Selk and later Vanat, and it is a really beautiful, beautiful situation. And and the the fact that the game immediately just starts throwing wrenches into the works, like like it it does that thing where like before you go back in time, you know, Elidibus is like, okay, well, you know, the the few you can't change the past to undo the tragedies of the present. You have to like. You know, you you can't interact with people. This is you know, it's really important. Make sure you don't fuck up the time. And uh, immediately, you know that Arlie you know Ermy clip from Full Metal Jacket of him going, "What is that? What the fuck is that?" That's basically what Emmett Selk does, or rather, what Hythladeus does, because you're a tiny little ghost on the floor of the Elpis Aetherite, and then Hythladeus looks down and goes, "What the hell is that? Yeah, what is what is that thing?" And Emmett Selk is trying to pretend that he can't see you, but he obviously can. Hythladeus is like, "Huh, that looks that looks an awful lot like Asm, huh?" And uh, and he sort of eggs on uh, Emmett Selk to uh, to throw a bunch of ether at you so that uh you can sort of exist and also in the process he makes you taller so that you like aren't really small and inconvenient to talk to you're at scale with the rest of the ancients here um Emmett Selk is also the narrator for this expansion which uh completely makes sense now that I've finished it Oh, yes, he's the narrator for the expansion, not just in the sense of, like, so the previous narrators, you know, obviously in Heavensward you have Dadkila, who is, uh, you know, 
narrating like his book basically he's he's basically giving you the audiobook version of heaven's word the novel um and then stormblood lease Le- yeah stormblood is lease is, is framed as her sort of talking to you know papa limo yeah at his grave or something um just reflecting on things yeah in shadowbringers it is ardbert of course your your all your constant companion your your constant companion and and friend who did everything right and mm. then uh and then in in endwalker of course it's emmett selk and the thing that is very funny about emmett selk's narration is that unlike a lot of the other narrators it is kind of implied that his narration is happening in real time as he is like watching things happen and the reason why uh i'm pretty sure that's the case so two reasons one um there's sort of a like half dream half conversation you have with hithlidaeus at one point very nearly to the end of the game um where he like talks about the fact that you know they've been watching the whole time um but the the other thing that's really really funny is that when you actually first arrive uh in thavnir you take a uh experimental aetherite um to go halfway across the world to an aetherite you're not attuned to yet and that gives everyone a really bad tummy ache and everyone's like just miserable and almost throwing up and emmett Selk specifically like- specifically it's not everyone it is it, it is the party you go to thabner with is you thancred urian j and astinian who has attuned to the thabner aetherite network so he is fine everyone else has a tummy ache that's right yes they everybody else is just just miserable like just trying so hard to keep their lunch in and uh the what what's really funny is that because everyone's like retching emmett selk gets interrupted like twice during his narration and tries to keep going it's really really funny um so yeah like it's he's narrating in real time while you're just doing stuff which is really really funny who's he narrating to who is is hithlidaeus just sitting there watching the whole thing like it's a stage play presumably um but yeah emmett selk is he is featured a lot in this game which i really was not expecting at all um and not in a way that's bad either because you know you think oh it's lame he's gonna be another like dark passenger in your soul adding to all of the fucking guys in there you know i got ardward in there you got you got Frey. if you did the dark knight quests like you just got a bunch of dudes in there but no he's completely separate and in fact you only talk to the present incarnation of him once uh at the very end and the rest of it is is pretty much concentrated in elpis but there's so much of him and he he's always been a bitch which is wonderful to know he's emmett selk has always been just the absolute worst and it's beautiful i I also love the 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 characterization hithlidaeus gets because he's sort of set up through your encounters with him in amarat as uh as like a, a a shade of his sort of former self he's like very wise very knowing he's like but cheeky he's very cheeky he's very cheeky but in this very like reserved like ancient kind of way and uh it's really delightful seeing him in life 
where he's just a little shit. He's just a little shit, and it's beautiful. He's he he is a guy who very much knows his limits when it comes to manipulating ether. He loves to mess with his best buddy Emmett Selk, like, and he's he just has a general good humor about things. Like he's he just seems to be having a great time, uh, which I adore. He's very easygoing. Um, and of course, we already talked about Hermes. We should at some point loop back around to what caused all this, which is, of course, uh, you kill Zodiac at level 83. You know, Zodiac. Yeah, you the know, big guy? The, the big guy, the dude who's like basically been the, the, the demon lurking at the edge of the screen big, for like the entirety threat. of the game. Yeah, you kill him yeah. as the 83 trial, uh, barely a quarter of the way through the game. And and this this causes the end of the world, which, by the way, I have to say, like Fan Daniel's plan, just beautiful. Like like it's probably the best plan, plan we've seen in this game. Um, aside from maybe Emmett Selks, because Emmett Selk also had a pretty good plan. All he, things considered, he also had a pretty good plan. But the problem with Emmett Selk's plan is that he was not specifically banking on the warrior of light to do the thing that they do like like emmett selk was standing in opposition to the things that the warrior uh was doing at least in the in the end there um whereas fan daniel all he wanted to do was facilitate you to do the things that you do he knows he, he knows full well that you are going to bust in the front door and just murder anything in the room without a second thought like not, not even questioning the situation you see like a big nasty primal you're gonna throw him in the dumpster um which is great for him because he, in two separate instances, uses this to completely ruin you. Like the first time you walk into the Tower of Babel and you dumpster uh, Anima, which by the way, yeah, Anima, the ultimate summon, is a dungeon boss. And you dumpster him in like two seconds. And then Fandaniel's like, oh, cool, sweet. Now I'm going to use all that Aether as a big laser cannon to blow up the moon, uh, which he almost gets away with. Heidelin has to intervene through controlling Kryle, who often acts as a conduit for Heidelin. Uh, not after that, though, because the, stra- the strain is quite a lot. But yeah, like, he very nearly frees Zodiac right then and there. And of course, because Elidibus is basically dead, Zodiac has no consciousness at the moment. There is no guiding heart to Zodiac. So Fandaniel can just slot right in there. Yeah, um, which is this beautiful betrayal moment, by the way, because, like, obviously Xenos is there, and he's like, yeah, I'm gonna be Zodiac, and we're gonna fight, and it's gonna be great, and then uh, the camera just pans over to Fandaniel being like, oh, and by the way, I was not kidding about wanting to die, see you later, and he just drops off the cliff and falls into the big pit where Zodiac lives. And even Xenos is surprised, the man who will not emote, um... <laughs> He's like he he looks very he looks quite shocked as Fandaniel pulls his master plan. Um, let's talk a little bit about Fandaniel himself. We talked about Hermes, his past incarnation. We should talk about what brought him into being the Joker. So, Elpis wraps up with the answer to the question: What caused the final days? And it's kind of chilling. So, Medion, as I said, has been 
her, her and her sisters have been shot off into space as probes to connect with various peoples and and learn what they value in life. What 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 do they live for? And at, at a certain point, Medion begins to freak out and like run away because she's receiving data from the shared consciousness. Yeah. Um. And doesn't want to share it with anyone because what the media matea have found is the every star that they had visited is either already desolate and dead or on the verge of death like the the dying yes um, not just dying I, but the people there are in such despair that the only thing they want is to die to be relieved of their suffering and of course Medion is an entelechy who is very sensitive to the emotions of others. So you can imagine what being hook up, hooked up to this shared consciousness of her sisters who have been exposed to so much horror and despair over the course of their travels does to Medion. Yeah. And it, so she does not want to share her full report with Hermes because she knows that it would just crush him it would ruin him if he heard it it would and and it does it's there's there's a really specific line actually that i really quite like and i believe it's emmett selk who delivers it um during this this chase after Medion, um and and he asks like did you ever consider what would happen if the question you're asking is flawed did you ever consider what would happen if you know the answer to the question what do other people live for is nothing and he's like oh shit <laughs> yeah he the the experiment is flawed from the start and it has horrific consequences because the reason the final days are happening is that the various media have coalesced at the edge of creation um with the sole purpose of exterminating all life on Etheris, the planet. It's not Hydaelyn. Hydaelyn is simply the will of the star. The planet is named Etheris. We finally get a name. And she is doing this at the behest of Hermes, who in his, in his role as chief researcher of Elpis decides... That just like every creature that they have tested within the walls of the facility, humanity needs to prove their worth to live as well. So he erases him, Emmet Selk, and Hythlodeus's memories using Kairos, which is the thing they use to reset experiment parameters, basically. If, if, a, if a creature has been too compromised in one way or another, they simply reset it using this thing. And he sends Medion into the depths of space to you to basically create a gigantic uh, torrent of dynamis to overwhelm Aetheris's like ether field and destroy it uh, because dynamis can overwhelm ether in sufficient amounts. But the problem is that you know. Dynamis is is a, is a very weak force on its own, and it is like a they 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 talk about it like a like a a trickling river along like alongside 
the the raging sea of ether. But if you send enough concentrated dynamis at anything, bad things will happen. Yeah, it's essentially uh, the the sort of metaphor they use is the idea of like uh, like a big dammed up lake. Uh, and there's just like a little trickle flowing down uh, into the into the river. Uh, but what happens if you just undam it and you let the entire lake spill into the river? It's that's sort of the deal. And so, yeah, this is why your actions in the past have no consequences because no one can remember them. Yeah, well, like, you tell the entire story. You are basically coerced to tell everyone what happened and you know everyone has various reactions Venat and hythlodeus immediately believe you uh emmett selk thinks it's bullshit that he would be a big dramatic asshole and try to blow up the whole world and make a, a phantom amarat full of the shades of the dead he's thinking he says that would i could never do that that sounds dumb yeah that that's sounds that sounds dumb i'd never do that which is pretty funny but the thing the thing that's that's interesting like i i love that part actually is that Venat like um like this, the second you meet her, she is like, "Hey, are you from the future?" Because literally, the blessing of light, you have it on you, right? Like it's it's just sort of a part of you. It's actually a traveler's ward that was developed by her that she, like, really has only ever put on herself and presumably, um, the present asm, which is you know you in the past, and. Or someone who has a resemblance to you, or might even not, because, you know, souls don't always have to have much resemblance to their, their future incarnations. Well, they, um, they specifically say uh, a couple of times that uh, not only is your soul the exact same color, but you are the spitting image of Azem. I love the idea that Azem is, a, is like a, a huge buff row lady in the, in the world of the ancients. All these weak ass stick armed nerds getting noogies from Azim. Just just shoving all of them in the lockers. But uh Presumably because none of those sundered races exist, the, the Azim is, is is the same as as the rest of the ancients. Just to say real big humans with L's in proportions. Yeah, L's in proportions and very pretty eyes. Yes, they all have anime eyes. Um I've already described Emmett Selk as young Xehanort. Hermes has green eyes. Hythlodeus has these very, very pretty pink eyes. And Vinat has striking, glowing blue eyes. Let's talk about Hydaelyn. Let's talk Vinat. about Hydaelyn. Hydaelyn is... <sighs> Hydaelyn is, a, is a lot. what the fuck was up with Hydaelyn for most of this game. I didn't really care about Hydaelyn for most of this game. Because she only really matters in a realm reborn after that she's pretty distant um after 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 that and after post heavensward she is fairly background in the game and i always wondered what her deal was because we learn a lot about zodiac in shadowbringers and we kind of get what his personality would be like even though we never actually meet him the circumstances of his creation tell you a lot about what he is like as a character. Hydaelyn has always been this vague sort of benevolent light goddess, a big crystal floating in, in space, um, which is fine for a JRPG. But I think if you're going to make anything, a, the emotional crux of a game, you need to expand on it more. Luckily they extremely do. And now I 
understand what Heidelin is. So Vinat, all right. So let me tell you about, I, I will tell you all, I am structuring this in the seven moments in this game that made me cry. And I don't mean get choked up and, and you know, brush away a single tear. I mean, I had to put the controller down and pull myself together. There are about seven of those. And the first one happened uh, in Elpis when you were t- you, so important thing about Vinat. Number one, she is the former holder of the seat of Azem. She is the I, I don't know if she's the originator of Azem, probably not, but she was the one before the one whose soul became yours. So that's crazy. Yeah, she she's like kind of your former self's mentor in a lot of ways. And much like the Azem we have heard about, Vinat is extremely adventurous, very, like, not carefree, but confident, uh, sort of rebellious against the society of, of the ancients here. Um, we already talked about how she ref- didn't want to, you know, retire, quote unquote, after she stepped down and instead wanted to keep traveling because she felt as though she wasn't entirely fulfilled yet. She wanted to see more. And we learn about that. So on this bridge, when you're waiting to, to find out more information about Medion, who, who at this point has disappeared, uh, she you, you, you're talking to her about kind of what, what happens if Medion's reports come back with nothing. Um, and she has this beautiful like monologue about what she finds wonderful about the world. And she basically says, you know, I've never found any indication that all of this is a result of anything other than pure happenstance. Uh, but I don't care because that fragility and, and bizarre coincidence is, is wonderful. And, and I love the people of this world and the endless skies and, and all of this. And I just want to see and experience as much of it as I can. And then she turns to you and, and asks just, just two very simple questions. And she asks, have you had a good journey? Have you, uh, has, has your, has your time here been worthwhile? And I guess it was just the combination of that entire previous monologue that she went on. And then just sort of the weight of, uh, of what I had played up to that point, the entire, you know, it, it's an extremely metatextual question as well. Cause it's turning to the player and saying, have you had a good journey? Like this, is this is, uh, Yoshi P turning to ask you this and it just got it just really got to me yeah it's it's Endwalker has a lot of moments where it asks you basically the same question it asks you was did you enjoy your journey and was your journey worth it 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 asks the player to introspect on their time in Eorzea It, it asks the player to think about themselves in relation to the story. And I think it's very interesting. There's there's very few games that I feel try and integrate a player character in the same way that Endwalker has tried to do it. Um, you have plenty of games that try to interrogate sort of the metatextual angle of a player engaging with a game. You have a lot of uh, games that mechanically and uh, thematically try and discuss 
you know, player agency and things like that. But Endwalker isn't really interested in interrogating that kind of aspect of things. It's a lot more interested in interrogating the idea of a player placing themselves inside of the world they're exploring and how they feel about it with themselves in relation to those uh, characters and places. The, the game is asking you how your journey was, not, you know, in the sense of like, you know, how have you enjoyed the game, but specifically, how have you enjoyed the world that you've immersed yourself in? You know, how deep does the connection run in you to the world that you've been a part of for maybe, you know, 10 plus years if you've if you've been here since the beginning? And so after all that, Vinat escapes Kairos. Her memory is intact. And yours too, Heidelin thankfully. Hydaelyn is, is the result of a stable time loop, as we learn, basically. Um, so you, 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 you return to your time to share the truth of, of the final days that, that uh, Meteon and her sisters await at the edge of creation, singing their song of oblivion. And then you see the sundering. You get to see it as as Vinat uh, walks through the ruins of Amarat, sees the, the, the horrors wrought upon its people, passes the, you know, Emmet Selk and Hythlidaeus, who, of course, do not remember the truth of this. And that scene in particular, um, it is, I think, very heavily implied that as Hithlidaeus is walking away and waving, and Emmet Selk just sort of gets very upset at him leaving, I, I believe that is supposed to be implied as this is the sort of moment where Hithlidaeus walks off to be one of the people sacrificed for Zodiac. I don't think that's necessarily happening in real time in that scene. I think it's sort of a vignette, but it is like... Because uh, I believe we know for a fact Hithlidaeus is one of the people who was sacrificed yes, for Zodiac. He is, because you meet him on the moon among all of the other wandering shades yes. who are escaping from Zodiac's weakening prison. Um, yeah, well, yeah, the moon, it's not really that big of a deal, honestly. Uh, you know, you spend a little bit of time there, and it's around, but moon... Not 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 a huge part of the game, weirdly. It, it, I think it might be the shortest section of the game, in fact. Yeah, it's the moon's the moon's weird. The moon's really cool. I like the fact that it doubles as both a prison for Zodiac, but also it's an arc to transport everyone off of the planet should like, you know, no one be able to defeat Medeon and also Zodiac bites it. So but yeah, so basically Heidelin has created many contingencies. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the Sundering. Yeah, like you said, this this scene is very impressionistic. I don't really believe that we're meant to be taking everything we see as completely literal in, in terms of the time frame. Um what we see is why Heidelin chose to do this. And it the reality of it is that she sundered the world out of you know Vinat's boundless love for its peoples because it was the only way to buy them enough time to prepare for the end for and uh you you see her plunge her blade into the ground and sunder the world as she 
as she staggers wounded and, and filthy through the like the rift and and sees the suffering on these shards she has one of the hardest lines in the fucking world when she encounters all of these emiratines who are just giving into despair and and begging zodiac to return the world as it once was which was the plan they were going to create more life to sacrifice the zodiac to restore the souls given to him um but this is something vinat could not accept that after all of this the ancients simply wanted to turn away and ignore everything that had happened and so she says no longer shall mankind have wings to bear him to paradise henceforth he shall walk and then sunders the the world yeah it's an incredibly raw line really raw delivery it's it's that that whole scene is incredible it it again another like crying moment for sure and i i really like sort of the thematic reasoning for why she does this because a, a big part of it is not just necessarily to buy time um or anything like that and part of it is also the fact that of course um sundering humanity uh splitting um their souls into 14 contingent pieces uh you know they have so much less aether that they can actually interact with dynamis in a meaningful way um which you know is probably going to give them the upper hand and ultimately does but more importantly i think than that there's the fact that the society of the ancients is in a lot of ways like a prelapsarian society it's sort of the garden of eden in a lot of ways it's supposed to be this like pseudo perfection um and the people who live there have kind of an innocence to them and you know the final days it represents an innocence lost and they they want to return to that innocence uh by any means necessary and you know despite how much she's very clearly struggled to argue with and counter with these ideas nobody's willing to listen to her because they you know they've experienced eden and they cannot bear to see it leave so she has to make the decision that she has to introduce enough suffering into humanity's existence that it's willing to accept suffering as a part of life you know at this point in in the ancient society they simply are not willing to accept suffering and sadness as a part of life because it's not something they've experienced but if she provides sort of a view of reality to to humanity then they may be able to actually face despair head on and learn to live with it in a way that allows them to actually defeat it in the end and let's talk about that bit because suffering you know to live is to suffer i believe that's one of the lyrics and answers which by the way plays a lot during this expansion Mm -hmm. um fittingly enough and what i really like about the way this game handles that particular thing because you know a log line is ah suffering it'll make you stronger you'll come out harder in the once you've gone through the crucible which you could take 
some of from this game, but I really don't think that's what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say is, yes, you will suffer and go through hardships and sadness, but what will make you stronger and help you heal is the ability to turn to those around you who will reach out a helping hand and share that pain and and help everyone move past it. That is really what the game is about. And that, that brings me to Garlemald, um, which is in many ways the most surprising segment of the game to me. Because the game has had uh, a dubious relationship with politics at best in the past in certain ar- in certain areas yeah um, i'm looking at you for point one uh but and so when i heard when you hear the grand company of, is of eorzea is sending a relief contingent to the ruins of garlemald um you think oh boy here we go but it actually ends up being handled really quite well um so the basic setup is that garlemald the garland empire is dead it is no more the civil war brought on by Varys's death has ruined the city and anima and fandaniel have tempered most of its inhabitants um those who remain are trying to survive the harsh unforgiving winters of ilsebard in the burned out husk of the capital city which is where the ilsebard contingent comes in led by lucia junius yes the the lady who is uh americ's second in command well i guess technically now she is lord commander of the temple knights um and who never really did anything in the game before this. Like, she was around, but they are very smart in picking what characters to send on this contingent. Because there are a lot of old and relatively new faces who reappear here, which I adore. And Lucia is actually someone who becomes a very admirable character to me. Uh, because this whole effort is, of course complicated from the start they talk about when you meet them in alamigo a lot of people talk about yeah you know for every person that joined up three more turned us down because people have complicated feelings about garlemald and they're right to they are allowed to yeah but lucia is you know and and she is a traitor to her homeland she betrayed them to join ishgard yeah, And yet she's looking at what is going on and, and, and realizing that it is not, you know, whatever nobles once ruled Garlemald or whatever that are suffering. It is it is the people of her country who are dying in the winters as, for, for Fandaniel's whims. And so she cannot sit by and let it happen. Yeah, it's... It's very interesting. I, I quite like... So there's many instances in in Endwalker, where the game sort of goes out of its way to try to impress the, like, withholding of judgment on people, um, unless they're, like, really, like, actually responsible for things. 
and and I find that to be the, it's a very touchy way of dealing with a subject because it's very easy to do it very wrong. Um, yes. But I feel like Endwalker as 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 a as a narrative pulls it off fairly well, and Garlemald is a pretty good example of this. It's on its completion, and I, and I think that's important to note. Is I, I think that. Um, if you if you kind of take issue with a lot of the ways that the game has handled Garlemald as a topic in the past, you're probably going to get about halfway through uh, the area and start feeling like they're not really going to handle it that well. Um, but it does end up working out uh, in the end because I, I, I feel like it starts out fairly strongly with the Ilsebard contingent uh, coming together and the game acknowledging, you know, the idea of sort of a humanitarian mission to Garlemald is not going to sit well with a lot of people, very understandably. Um, when you, including the Garleans, including the Garleans who do not want it, uh, both for the fact that they feel like they're just being invaded opportunistically, um, but also because, you know, they consider a lot of the people who are coming to help them to be, like, savages who are below them and, like, scary and bad people. Who worship false gods and do strange magics. There's a lot of talk of of distrust of Eorzean magic and whatnot. Um, yeah, this the, the one of the things that fascinated me the most is that we finally, finally, after all this time... I understand the ideology behind the Garlean Empire. They actually have one beyond being an evil empire. It's true. And beyond that insane shit Varys said in pre-Stormblood. That was just him trying to cope. I don't know what that was. Yeah, it was um, very much rat-in-a-cage ideology with with Varys. The truth of Garlemald is that... So we, you learn a lot about their origins and how they came to exist in this fucking blasted, icy waste. Um, they were a... We, we knew that the Garlean people historically have been pretty unable to interact with Aether, um, leaving them fairly weak in a society that revolves almost entirely around magic. Yeah, and so, so sort they of a bad, were, a bad hand of cards. Yeah, so they were uh, kicked out of their ancestral homeland by uh, Grahatia's ancestors, who were the descendants of Alag. They were the last remnants of the Alagan Empire, who were sworn to keep their secrets. Um, the the area is called Corvus or Corvinius, I believe, um, but the Garleans have another name for it: Locus Amanus. And the entire Garlean ideology revolves around this idea that they were torn from their homeland once and forced to adapt to the to the harsh conditions of Ilsebard. And they are terrified of it happening again. Um, they are an empire of paranoia and fear and the the ruling class of Garlemald has basically told the citizenry that the only way to preserve the Garlean way of life is 
rapid, aggressive expansionism for the sole purpose of making sure no one can invade them. Yeah, which is, you know, obviously incorrect. You know, nobody's nobody's really planning on on eating Garlemald for dinner here, but uh, but they're pretty convinced. And, of course, the fact that the Ilsebard contingent shows up at all after the demise of the government basically reinforces this idea to most of the people you meet. Like, everyone who is, like... A, a like a garlean citizen basically like upon seeing you has you know feels that their suspicions were confirmed that everything they've been taught uh was was true that the second that the shields are down everybody's going to come in to come and ransack and get a piece of the pie and no matter how nice you are to them they're not willing to believe you that there's actually any good intentions behind what you're doing at all and it's 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 very it's very interesting it's a very interesting angle to take and another interesting angle is the introduction of uh i believe they're called the trappers who they they're the tappers the tappers tappers, i believe the tappers so the tappers uh you meet very briefly you don't really interact with them very much but you do you do interact with them very briefly um and they are a bunch of people from the territories who have been brought in to mine or extract i guess uh, ceruleum, which is the equivalent of oil in uh, in Final Fantasy fourteen, and what you know, of course, the Garlean society runs off of, and they really don't have a whole lot of love lost for the you know quote unquote proper Garleans who you know have had their society kind of destroyed. They aren't really all that broken up about it because of course their societies were destroyed uh to preserve garlemald so they're really not like bothered by the fact that you know the eorzean contingents here they're like oh hey are you guys gonna take over now sick that's that's awesome and then, of course, Alphano says no that's not true but then you say yeah well whatever and the important thing about the tappers is they're not portrayed as like the vindictive you know getting what's coming to them kind of guys they're mostly just unaffected by it they're they're kind of like off to the side and when the you know the, you meet them through this this chain involving uh going to this this manor house so structurally garlemald is at least the first part of the the arc in garlemald is entirely focused around the twins alphano and alisay um who are the ones who are very are probably the most invested in this entire humanitarian mission obviously alfano this is his bag this is what he's been trying to do this entire time it was the misguided ideals that caused him to create the crystal braves which of course ended in complete and utter failure and crushed him and so this he is trying again and he has decided that he doesn't want to force his help on anyone he doesn't want to like impose on the people of garlemald he is going to try any way he can to help them however they will let him um and so you find you you follow this this girl out in the blasted wastes to this manor house full of survivors 
you know, this old, this big old manor that was apparently given to, to you know, uh, veterans of, of the Gurlian military. And they require Ceruleum to run the heaters. So you go to these tappers who, who basically talk about, like, I mean, we're, we're not, we would trade them if they had anything to trade, but they don't seem to have any food. We gave them a little bit, a bit, a little bit of Ceruleum to keep them, like, running, but, I mean, we, we gotta look after our own here. Um... And that's what I, I really like about them is that they're just like, they're just people. And all around Garlemal, the Garlean arc is just like, everyone is just, at a certain point, past, you know, Quintus, the, the last remaining leader of the Garlean military who was desperate to hold on to this dead empire. Past people like that, they're all just people. Like, and, and they need help. Uh, whether they want to and know it or not. And that brings us to the second, the, the main sort of point of view character, I guess, for the Garlean port, the Garlean portion, which is, uh, Hullis, a young qu- qu- officer question mark in the Garlean military. I don't really know what his position, uh, but what I do know is that he looks really young. Like he is definitely, not he's he's like 20 at the most i bet yeah he's he is a he is a young man he's probably 18 or 19 honestly he's he is not an especially uh old individual i have to imagine that uh he probably attained his sort of higher rank status because a lot of vacancies opened up yeah so hollis works for the, uh, he's under the command of the First Legion, led by Quintus. I forget his full title, but he is basically Ver- he was he was Varus's right hand man, pretty much. The First Legion were the most hardline Varus loyalists in the Civil War, and they crucially managed to avoid the mass tempering of Anima. Which, by the way, we forgot to mention, Anima is comprised of Varus's like reconstructed corpse yeah it's like this so, uh, it's it's this beautiful beautiful situation where Finn Daniel's like yeah so Garlean the Garlean Empire was built in a very specific way so that it cannot create uh summons and they did it by just outlawing religion very simple however people still worship things so i'm tapping into their worship of their freaking emperor and gonna turn him into the god which is like very clever the cult of personality um and the reason that the so these people survived the tempering unscathed is due to this weird coincidence of the design of garlean radios being very similar in composition to other ways of disrupting tempering like it's it's this pure happenstance thing but because of this there's these i don't know if it's trace amounts of tempering or it's just simply the comfort that the thought brings and and hearing his voice briefly over the radio when these bursts happen that emperor varus is alive and he will deliver them from the the tyranny of the telophore and 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 bring garlemald back to his former glory quintus fully believes this he he is fully on board for this plan he, he is he 
<laughs> he is he is a a a alive Varus truther. He is an alive Varus truther, but he also is another reason, uh, a slightly better and more concrete reason to continue his path. And the reason is because he has intelligence that uh, has been going around that the remainders of I think the tenth, the thirteenth, and like the sixth legion or whatever, uh, basically are trying to reorganize themselves enough that they can march onto Garlemald and take the capital back from all of the like runaway magitech and tempered soldiers that are there. Um, so basically his job as the first legion in Garlemald is he's supposed to facilitate that arrival and make it so that, you know, they're able to link up and actually take things back, which is why, of course, they go through so much trouble to kind of inconvenience and otherwise take out the Ilsebard contingent. And so, yeah, uh, Hullus, uh takes the two twins and you as envoys to meet with Quintus after being caught trying to steal from the camp. Um, they they collar the twins with Magitek shock collars to prevent any, any funny business. Uh, but specifically... I, what I love is that Quintus specifically says, oh, don't call her that one, uh, talking about the Warrior of Light. That's the champion of, of Aorza. You're just gonna make, you're just gonna make them mad if you shock them. Smartly using the twins as like, if you, if you pull any shit, I hurt them. Yeah. Um, which, and they're, they're considerably less durable than you are. Yeah, which is, which is very clever. Like, the villains and, I guess, yeah, like the, like the villains and the like, antagonists of the different parts of the uh, of the expansion are very clever in their use of force and the way that they apply it because um i think something that uh that sort of falls flat in a lot of portions of the the earlier parts of the game is when the game sort of tries to leverage on you the player's weakness or perceived weakness in a situation um because the fact of the matter is that, is that shit don't fly anymore. Yeah, the, the the player character is dramatically too powerful for that now, especially, but even historically, and that's why a lot of stuff falls flat. Like, uh, I I actually really really deeply dislike a lot of the uh, the Xeno stuff in Stormblood proper because you know you very much can hold toe-to-toe against Xenos. It's really not that difficult, but he can just hit the concentravity button and make you fall on your ass for no reason. And it feels bad. Like, it just feels really bad. There's not an actual reason why he gets to do that. There's no real explanation. And, of course, in the fight you actually have with him at the end of Alamigo, he presses the concentravity button and it doesn't do anything. It's just a raid-wide. And... I guess the implication is that, you know, you've gotten strong enough that you're able to, like, go toe-to-toe with the guy, but it's just not, like, it just never feels justified, it never feels correct, it never really feels like you've achieved anything, because there's no, like, there's no process to it, it just sort of happens ambiently, it's not like uh, when you have to defeat Fordola and, you know, Yurianji has to be like, ah, yes, remember the Aetheric Disruptor? I'm gonna bring that one out of the closet, and and that sort of thing and you feel like you know you had to sort of get a leg up on on somebody you don't really get that um so it's nice to 
see an Endwalker when force is being applied to the player and force is being used to leverage you in a direction, it's being done in a way that makes sense. You know, it's being used like on your friends and your allies, uh, or it's being used, for example, to throw you in the body of a random Garlean soldier and let Xenos puppet you around for a bit. Yeah, we'll talk about Xenos in a minute. I want to get to him eventually, but I want to finish up on Quintus first, because Quintus is a fascinating figure for how briefly he's in the story. He is in, like, half of a level of an MSQ quest. Like, he is he is only in this first portion of Garlemald because that intelligence he was basing his entire plan on and, and like, hoarding Ceruleum and, and keeping aid from, like, starving and freezing uh, refugees... Was starving and freezing troops, his own troops, even. Yes. Yeah, like he he basically said, "Forget the injured. We have to concentrate on making ourselves as strong as possible." He literally diverts the entire supply of ceruleum at the end to the like four Magitek mechs they still have to throw at the Ilsebard contingent, uh, with the assumption that the other Legion remnants will be there to back them up. But as he learns, the 10th Legion goes to Alamigo to formally surrender and plead for aid, which, as you can imagine, doesn't go over well with him. So he tells Hullis to call off the attack, stand down and surrender to the Elsebard Legion. He relieves all of his soldiers from duty and then he shoots himself in the head. Yeah, he he just... He just commits suicide right there on screen. It's it's pretty rough. And like but it, it it really makes perfect sense for his character. He like he was really the last remaining hardliner. He was the last remaining guy who believed over all else, who believed over literally everything that Garlemald had to continue uh no matter the cost and everyone else who's left after he's gone they just want to live his death is the metaphorical death of the Garlean empire it is dead whatever happens next for the nation of Garlemald it will not be the same uh they say as much at the end of this game where it's like they will have to figure out what happens with the the ruins of this country and its people they have to figure out what what to do with it but quintus won't be involved the military won't be involved well i mean the military uh, will still be involved but the remnants of it i imagine the legatuses will not be um considering lucia has a line about maybe he uh killed himself so he could avoid being tried for war crimes which apparently is a thing that exists on eorzea yeah where's the freaking, where's where's the hague where's the uh where's the eorzean conventions so presumably all those legatuses are going there probably um, gaius because i, I listen yeah. gaius is gonna get tried for war crimes at some point i think gaius might turn himself in yeah Um, gaius by the way not in this expansion at all save for one scene where he basically says i can't go to garlemald because i might inspire a resistant movement and i don't want that yeah he sort of very correctly identifies the fact that like basically half of the remnants of garlemald so he is technically 
in the chain of command, he should be in charge of the Garlean Empire now, which means if he goes back, half of the people are going to be like, you're a betrayer and betrayed us and ruined Garlemald forever because you killed Emperor Varys. And the other half of everyone's going to be like, he didn't kill Emperor Varys and he's Emperor Varys' loyal friend and he should be the leader and inspire a second civil war that probably would just wipe out everyone who's left. And guys is like, I still love my country and I don't want that to happen. So I am going to sit it out. Smart man. Um, but that's beside the point because I want to talk about the man who is technically in charge of the Garlean Empire, I guess, sort of. Xenos Yegalvis, or as what is his what is his uh title they bestow upon him later? Yeah, so later on it's revealed that uh Xenos has been stripped of his princely title, and he has been given the title of traitor, which is uh, Viator. Yeah, Xenos Viator Galvis. We, I think, were were both sort of aligned in thinking that Xenos was really was pretty lame in Stormblood, and kind of got better in Shadowbringers. I think Endwalker is the most successful and most engaging deployment of Xenos's character concept. Uh, yet and this I, I this might be divisive but i quite like how he's utilized in the story because as i said this is a game entirely about the frustrations and joys of human connection it is all about people helping each other through trauma and strife whether you know it, no matter how difficult it is that's the entire point of the ilsa bard contingent uh, there is a scene where I want to talk about briefly that almost made me cry, but didn't where Hollis is, uh, you know, he's, he's at camp broken glass, the headquarters of the Ilsebard contingent. Um, and Quintus has, has talked a lot about his philosophy of coexistence under different banners is impossible. The differences people have will always bring them to war and conquest. Inevitably, um, there can be no brotherhood, between of humanity save under the garlean banner um and uh but so that that is kind of the the worldview that that hollis loosely holds uh he's he's definitely influenced by at the very least and when he goes he he is surrendered to the contingent um there's a scene where he is he is just sort of wandering around dejectedly when uh an alamegan uh, resistance fighter comes up and offers him like a, a mug of stew and then just like a bunch of people come up and just start talking about it. Amandland and Sicard, who are constantly shit talking each other this entire expansion, which is great, uh, do that and talk about the recipe. And like, you know, Limsa has great food. No, better than that flavorless fish guardian slop and all that. And it's just, you know, it's people doing the thing they do, which is my hometown is better than yours, right? Like, this is classic stuff. But the, seeing this, like, extremely diverse group of 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 people here in ish uh in garlemald to aid them regardless of what they their their empire may have done in the past just sort of brings hollis to sobbing tears in the middle of this camp of just realizing that like no that quintus's truth is not my truth i don't have to believe that yeah just the 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 understanding that we're that, that we're all just people is is something that that I think strikes him 
uh, really hard. And I think the just sort of the compassion for like your fellow person in in that moment that that he feels just just from being handed uh, a very simple what? meal. Like I I think that's it's it's a very powerful moment. There's a lot of there's a lot of symbolism in something like that. Um, a lot of very powerful symbolism. Food is a very important symbol in uh, in this game, which we'll get to later when we talk about the scions themselves, who are the, perhaps the most important part of this game. But I want to talk about Xenos first, because Xenos is... In Stormblood, they tried to frame Xenos as your dark mirror because he loved violence and fighting just like you, which really, really was hit or miss depending on how you think about your character. Yeah, that's the thing. Like for for some people, I think that's, you know, that's going to resonate with you pretty well, but it makes a lot of assumption about not just the character but also the player behind them. Um it makes a lot of assumptions about why you enjoy the story and why you are participating in it, you know, the sort of thesis statement that Xenos brings to the table as a character is the idea that you, as a player, are here because you desire the challenge. You desire the sort of... Uh, the thrill of the, the hunt. The thrill of the hunt. You you desire the challenge of, a, of an ever bigger monster uh, lurking around the corner for you to go and throw into the dumpster, which is true for some people but isn't true for everyone uh there's a lot of people who engage with the game on a much more narrative level who engage with the game in different ways who don't really play the game in the way that xeno sort of implies that you do and you don't really have an option to argue with him very much the closest thing you could do is kind of just not respond and then he kind of goes ah yes but by not responding you have admitted to it i am very smart yeah and he still has a bit of that in his character here obviously he's still he is still chasing the rush of that fight uh in the royal menagerie he still wants his duel with you but the way he is framed in the story is not really as a mirror to you it's in a mirror to all of the science as a whole because xenos what really is the fundamental thing wrong with xenos is that he was never able to like connect with anyone else on a fundamental level um he has he, he at the very end when he is dying in the like emptiness of the edge of the universe just a flat void where where you have your final confrontation he says you know, I was never able to, like, truly feel anything for another person until we fought. And it's just sort of this, like, I don't know, the realization that this, you know, he, he is he is constantly wanting to fight you. And, as soon, and, and if your attention is anywhere else other than him, he simply leaves. He is uninterested in anything other than fighting you. And if you have anything else on your mind other than fighting him he knows that he your your 100 will not be in it and he doesn't want that so he simply leaves and the whole thing is he is trying to chase the one moment that he felt as though he understood someone else 
which is just tremendously sad. He is like he's he is a horrible, like selfish, cruel, hedonistic guy who just loves to fight. He is he is your worst friend. He is. He will show up when you need him, but n- do not want him, which is never. You never want to see him, but he will show up. He he is the guy and who like, shows up. It is. It is this thing where, and this whole thing where he body snatches you, I think, is also the, him just, he cannot grasp what it is that makes you different from him. He is, like, unable to ascertain, why is it that I did not win against you? What, are you just that much stronger than me? Like, what is it? Is it something physical? Is, it, is Are your muscles just bigger than mine? Like, he can't really comprehend that the reason he lost is because he's not he doesn't fight for anything other than himself he fights for his own pleasure and like he fully commits to living by that but he is fundamentally entirely alone and like the way he ends up is that he is the most alone anyone could ever be he is dead in the void so unimaginably far from any other living thing not even among the shades of ultima thule there's just nothing where he is and then you are delivered unto your your the 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 carrying hands of your friends after you defeat him and i think that's the most important thing because xenos he is he is the 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 antithesis of the warrior of light in basically every way like the the only similarity is that they are really good at fighting but xenos is just he he is someone who could never understand the joys of human connection and he, he could only view it through his own warped lens which ultimately led to not only the death and destruction of so many other lives but his own in this needless conflict yeah and like that i love that that xenos as stagnation xenos as this like boundless hunger that can never be satisfied because you're just not looking in the right place that's good and i think people say it's frustrating that you know he never changed but i don't think he ever wanted to or even knew how to he just didn't know what was wrong he never really thought about it he never really thought about it and also he's not really the kind of person who like fundamentally has the ability to introspect very well he would need to go through quite a lot of changes as a person before he ever got like the chance to introspect enough to understand what the problem even is so he just he dies and what i love is that you he 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 also asks if you were fulfilled if if this life has been a good one yeah and he dies before he can answer if he found it fulfilling yeah he he never gets to finish his sentence and i I think that that's that's kind of a good way to end it off because i don't know that he even would have had an answer you know either way even if he had been able to finish his sentence yeah xenos is just this sort of open maw that is just focus entirely on you and that brings me to what i really want to talk about which is the scions of the seventh dawn so this as i said this is a game about the the boundless like connection of humanity standing against the 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 endless dark and and entropy and and the 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 certainty of the void 
Um, and the Scions are, of course, the ones who will be the vanguard of that. So, obviously, if you are going to make a game about a found family, you need to devote a lot of time, or not even, just a story. A story about the love of a found family, you need to devote a lot of time to that. Which is, like, hard to do, because technically the scions have only had a huge amount of focus for the last two expansions uh they were almost entirely absent from stormblood and post stormblood um and they're they were torn away from heavensward as well so what i really love about the pacing of endwalker is that it is very long and very slow but it is ultimately a game that never wants to shy away from showing the the quiet moments the contemplative moments or even just the moments where they're not talking about big ideas or, or the 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 plot to to save the world and it's just it's just people who love each other hanging out it's really beautiful the the pacing i feel like there are there's sort of two ways you can define pacing right so there's the sort of broader pacing of the narrative on the whole and then you have the sort of moment to moment pacing and i think there are there there are parts of endwalker where the moment to moment pacing does kind of fall flat but i think the overarching pacing the sort of through line that that goes through the the entire thing I think is maybe the strongest that the game has ever had because it knows exactly when to uh, exposit a lot of stuff to the player. It knows exactly when it's the appropriate moment to really drive a stake through your heart. And it knows, most importantly, when it's necessary to tell a joke or give a quiet moment or have a moment where people are just being people and and that's really critical it's it's very easy i think to write a narrative in which the world is ending it's people have been doing it since the beginning of time you know you up the stakes to the the biggest degree possible the world's gonna end in a week it's been done a trillion 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 times uh this is not new territory but what makes that impactful, a story about loss only has impact when the loss means something, when you have an investment in the things that you're losing. Like, um, the only reason Ultima Thule as a location hits as hard as it does is because the rest of the expansion takes so much takes so much time and effort and it has the painstaking job of making you care as much as possible about the people who die there like if if you didn't care about thancred or ishtola or Yurianje or grahatia you wouldn't give a shit that they die in ultima thule but the game goes through such lengths to make you care about them to give them these small humanizing moments where you just are vibing with them that when yeah. they sacrifice themselves you are just as upset as everyone else in the scene is that you feel just as hurt uh, but still also as determined to keep pressing forward and to make those sacrifices worth it. 
This brings me to the second uh, point of this game that did make me cry, which is in the in, in the middle of Charlian. So this is a big expansion for Urianje. Um, he has so many incredible moments here. The uh, the 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 end the the Shadowbringers glow up only continues. Um, specifically, you know, he's hanging out with the Loperets, who I want to cover more, but I don't want to take too long because I mean this is already getting long, and I want to talk about the science. But the Loperets are important, and they really heavily tie into this this connection thing because you know they were created by Hydalin through her her just boundless love for the people of Atheris to deliver them from this horrible uh, d- destruction, if need be um the the last resort of the ark but they don't really know anything about humanity as it stands now and they barely knew anything about humanity as it was then and so the moon is this weird like kind of kind of construct uh, this facsimile of 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 life on a theris which uh you Yuchitola, Yurianje, and Thancred get a, t- a tour from and basically come off very politely smiling with very strained looks in your eyes. Well, almost everyone. Yurianje is the one who who is happy to give them feedback and share his views on things. And he stays up on the moon to help them better understand what it is they're trying to save. And so later he reappears in Charlian and and with with some loperets who are hanging around um and and just and it's just kind of showing them around and helping them learn more which is when a story thread so long abandoned that it would it mostly only comes up in a weird remember that thing from post arr bit which is moonbrita yes so it, early on when the scions are first sailing to charlian um Yurianje is very nervous about it because Monbrita's parents still work there. They still live there on the island. And he wrote them a letter about her death, but never actually visited to talk to them. And he is very afraid of if they're like mad at him or, or afraid of what how it has affected them. Uh, this is, I think this might be what makes him like one of the things that kind of makes him volunteer to stay on the moon almost to just kind of try and avoid that confrontation. Yeah, it's like, you know, obviously somebody has to help the rabbits, you know, make this place habitable, you know, just in case we need to use it, you know, it's no other reason. But but yeah, the the situation with with Yurianje is really interesting because Monbrita is a character who really didn't get an opportunity to be a character. This game, in its early state, is pretty bad about writing women. Like, just just on the whole, just pretty bad about it. They explode a lot. They really like to explode. And that's, you know kind of an issue and Monbrita doesn't really get an opportunity to do very much or be very much of a person um before her heroic sacrifice and you know the only sort of referential material to her after her death is you know kind of a creepy <laughs> sex doll joke <laughs> in talk her about the minion description. listen it someone's got to mention the main description it's pretty miserable fuck you <laughs> Koji Fox. it's uh it's um, so miserable 
But yeah, I mean, and and Yuriantu doesn't even really talk about it after that because he's doing his weird like ASEAN deep cover mission, um, which is another aspect of his character that they roll into it in Shadowbringers. This like penchant for secrecy that he has, and he he you can trust him with a secret, um, which is something that he honestly has a lot of internal conflict over because he he fucking hates lying to his friends and like the fact that he is the one who orchestrated Minfilia's death basically is is constantly weighing on him and he knows that like it was for the greater good and he he saved the first but like that doesn't make it any easier yeah that's um, that's kind of a consistent theme in endwalker actually is the fact that people are making these colossal sacrifices that maybe are justified but they're never a good decision this is never it's never an unalloyed good it's never something that you know you can take as any less evil than it truly is even heidelin in her last yeah. moments says you know the actions i took were monstrous they i introduced an absolutely untold amount of suffering to billions of people's lives uh who did not deserve it but it was an evil that was as necessary as any could have been and that's it's a through line you know yurianje having to sort of work with both Heidelin and Minfilia and sort of the three of them putting her up for sacrifice to prevent an entire world from being destroyed was probably necessary but will never be a good decision yeah and so we find him you know he's he has started bringing he, he is helping the people of Charlene understand their mission better by talking with the Loperitz and and bringing the those two groups of people together which is when Munbrita's parents finally show up they were on some field work i believe is where they were yeah because um, they they work and, as uh teleportation aetherite scientists yes uh actually the uh the opening to thavnir is that he goes to their like office basically but they aren't there so this lady is like oh yeah no we have the experimental thavnir uh, aetherite if you want to use it but that's beside the point um they they finally show up where where he is he's kind of uh holding this meet and greet with the the space rabbits um and and it, it is a weird vibe at first so his her mom and dad are there and, and her dad seems polite enough but kind of professional and cordial and all that right um and her mom is sort of hanging out behind him not looking at Irianje. And I think at first you're meant to kind of share his anxiety of, oh god, this is going to be like a, a terrible conversation. I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, and then, like, and, and the the uh, the ever in, uh, unflappable Urianje, right? He he is stuttering. He his hands start to shake when he's talking to him. And then the moment where I crumbled is when Munbrita's mother just runs up to him and just says, "Where I I we have been so." terribly worried about you we haven't heard anything from you i'm so glad you're okay and just wraps him in a big hug yeah she just fucking squeezes this man like a tube of toothpaste like he's going to disappear if she lets go and it is like it's it's deeply like emotionally impactful which is like the, the entire thing that they do with with monbrita's death here i i think is 
kind of it, it's, it's taking shocking. something that they have. It is this piece that has almost lain forgotten from fucking ten years ago. Ten years ago that happened. And like here we are, it is it is still a big part of Yorandi's character, and it is it is we learn a big part like Monbrita was so much more important to him than they were able to express in a realm reborn. Like they they talk about how Monbrita was always the one who would stick up for him. You know, he was he was always reading and he talked funny because, um, you know, he's like that. And she would always like yell at the other kids, be nice to him. And apparently she went to her parents like, I don't understand why they just like won't be nice to him. Uh, and they told her like, well, why don't you be his friend? Why don't you go learn more about him? And maybe you can help him make other friends. And so like Monbrita was his constant companion throughout his childhood. Um, and then when he left to join Luiswa, she, she wasn't allowed to go with him. But what I love about this scene is like, you know, they, they've, they've enhanced their, their animation rigging and whatnot, uh, since the end of Shadowbringers. So we are actually able to see a hug. Whereas what I always laugh about is the, the scene where Alice swims out from the Susano fight and least does the hug emote on her. Yeah. Um, we don't, we don't, we aren't dealing with that anymore. Don't worry. It's a real <laughs> hug. And what I love is, you know, Orion J is at first, he's not hugging back. He is, he just seemed shocked that, that this is happening. He feels, you know, it's almost like he doesn't feel like he is worthy of this, but eventually, you know, he hugs her back and his hands are shaking. He just, he's just crying. And she is just so happy that like, he has grown into the person she always knew he could be. Um, and like the fact that he is standing here, you know, bringing these, these weird little space rabbits together with these, these Charlian scholars trying to save the world, like is, is proof that he has, he has come so far and they're so terribly proud of him. Yeah. And it's, it's a really beautiful moment and it's a beautiful moment that comes from a place that you just, wouldn't have ever expected it to come from in the in in this game and i think that's something that you see quite a lot in this expansion just a lot of really beautiful moments that appear from places that you never would have thought they would come from you know garlemald is is another example just like these these really beautiful moments another one that really affected me actually was uh Fortuno. uh Fortuno is of course the twins father and he has a pretty big role in this expansion he's of course the speaker of the forum of charlian which is like sort of their government um he is the head of the of the project to build this uh, the ship to transport people to the moon. Yes, he's he's got quite a lot of of, of weight here in in the story, and uh, for most of it, he's kind of a complete hard ass. He's very very much ideologically opposed to the idea of interventionism. He hates the idea of you know what the scions stand for because in his mind he sees them as really just a bunch of warmongers not really acting in the best interests of anyone but rather just sort of upholding the status quo of a bunch of warring city-states he has no interest in that and has absolutely no desire to to support anybody who who 
does stuff like that, you know, let alone his kids. And one of the things uh, that I really like about uh, particularly the front half of Endwalker is that uh, prior to the expansion releasing, and this was in, I believe this was 5.5. Um, it's 5.55, in fact. It was the second half of Death Unto Dawn. Yeah, so in the second in the second half of Death Unto Dawn, um, Fortuno appears in the uh, in the you know Acorn President's like secret White House in the middle of the woods, and you you all have a conversation with him, and he reveals obviously the forum has absolutely no interest in participating in whatever the alliance has to do here. They don't believe the final days is going to happen. In fact, he specifically says if the final days was going to happen, they would know about it, which you know kind of reveals your hand a little bit there, my guy. But um, more importantly than that, though, to me anyway, is he sort of gives a thesis statement for the front half of the X-Pack. And he he asks, and, I, and I, I'm struggling to remember the exact question that he presents to his children, but the question is more or less, you know, you know, you are expressing the need to go to war you're saying that this is our only option that we have to fight is that fighting worth the sacrifices you have to do to see it to the end and they don't have an answer alice gets angry and indignant and alphano simply doesn't have anything to say he doesn't have a response because that's a very hard question to ask it's a very hard question to answer you know are the sacrifices worth you know the the conflict you know is it better to simply avoid the conflict altogether because of course that's sort of the forum's entire thing here that's sort of the the crux of their idea is that they're going to avoid all conflict including the conflict of the final days simply by aborting another arc and going somewhere else and you know that's that's sort of the beating heart of the front half of 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 the game here is is he right and uh garlemald ultimately i think is uh sort of the answer to that question because garlemald is kind of i would argue like garlemald and then the the first part of uh of the moon i would say sort of is the end of the first arc like the 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 first act of uh of endwalker and it's it concerns largely with Alphano and Alice um, answering that question. Of course, at the very end of Garlemald, you know, Alphano has his answer, and it is that the sacrifice is worth it because it's, you know, everyone has to make sort of their own decision as to whether or not that sacrifice is worth it, and to him, it is. And of course, to Alice, it also is, but Alice has her own reasons for believing that too, which is very which is very interesting it's you know sort of an acknowledgement that you have to have you can't just follow someone to the end you have to have a reason to walk there on your own let's talk about ultima thule um which is the final area of the game i don't know why it's called that uh presumably it's some kind of reference but 
what it is is the nest uh, that the Meteon has created at the edge of at the edge of the universe, where she has has nestled within the shattered remains of a dead star, and has simply been blasting a torrent of dynamis directly at Aetherus this entire time. Yeah. And now that Zodiac is dead and Hydaelyn is dead, the final days are in full force. They are. And, and so. an important thing to note also is that her plan uh, is more than just the destruction of Aetherus. Her plan encompasses sort of a multi-stage thing because she needs to end the lives of all the people on Aetherus as a mercy but she also intends to make it so that no one can ever reincarnate again and life can never take root again by sort of holding all of those souls in a big orb of sadness uh, at the edge of the universe and also using Dynamis, which is sort of this universe's equivalent to dark energy, to make the heat death of the universe happen as soon as possible. Yeah, she learned about this from uh, a bunch of hyper-advanced beings called the Aya. The little blobs. Who you actually, that you meet the shades of in Ultima Thule, which is the reconstructed shattered remains of these various societies that she has pulled from, which we'll get to how this place exists at all in a minute. But um, yeah, her plan is that she wants to maximize entropy right now immediately, because to her... Uh, it would be a mercy because life is is meaningless and, and and to live is to suffer and everyone would be better off if they never existed at all. So that is where you find her. Um, she you you get there in the uh, the, the 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 Ragnarok, which is the arc they were going to use for the moon. And I could talk about how you get there and like you use the mother crystal and the and the, the the myriad tribes summon the true forms of their gods to like usher you onto the, 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 the edges of creation were not, not powered by the, the tampered Asian summoning, but pure belief and love, right? Where the, the, these are the true primals, not, not these things you have fought in the past. These are what they truly represent. Um, and we could talk all day about that, but I, I need to talk about Ultima Thule because Ultima Thule is where it all comes together. Uh, so you get there, and immediately Medion appears on your ship and uh, basically tries to kill you all instantly. However, one person does not collapse under her massive control of Dynamis. Thancred manages to stand and attempts to strike at her, and then and then you you know the blink it fades to black, and you open up and you're on this like graveyard of worlds uh, but Thancred is not there and as you later learn Thancred is gone he is functionally dead he Meteon unmade him um, but the strength of his conviction for his not only his friends but for the people he loves on the first to survive allows Ultima Thule to become a habitable place for the scions otherwise it would be it would be nothing it would be a void exactly it would it would but thancred's last last wish to survive allows them to step out onto it and find the the shattered shades of of the 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 dragon star that midgard stormer hails from the 
the Aya who have who have come to a conclusion that not only is life meaningless, they are in a hurry to get uh, get their ticket out of there. And the Omicron, who are, of course, Omega's people, uh, who are eternally upgrading and conquering their way across the universe. Um, and Ultima Thule is, is very long, and the structure of it is to advance closer to Meteon's nest, you have to use the suffusion of Dynamis to create the path forward. And the path is being barred by the sheer weight and depth of the sorrow felt by the shades of its inhabitants. Um, you can't, they, they do not wish to go forward. They only wish to die. And therefore, there is no way forward. Yeah, the only way to produce a way forward is to, with your own conviction and emotion, counter they're the strongest uh bearers of that uh that indolence and and that uh that lack of of uh of desire to move forward you you have to sort of cancel it out and and that one by one is what the scions do Estinian they they all give a speech to sort of whoever the shade is or shades of um of that society that you're trying to move forward in uh they give a speech to the those those entities and they like counteract the beliefs that they hold and their emotion is able to produce a path forward astinian gives you uh a a gust of wind uh through which to uh to jump to a great height you know the uh, Yishtola and Yurianje uh, reactivate the dead technology uh, of this advanced society such that you can use its teleporter to move forward. Uh, Grahatia, you know, creates this sort of beautiful crystal lattice that forms a stairway towards, uh, towards the top. And, of course, the twins, in the end, do something even slightly more than just that because they produce a a glowing rainbow stairway uh up to um up to the uh, the very peak where uh, where median lies but they also they they don't just wish for a way physically forward they create a way that they hope will enable the warrior of light to have a happy ending to their story to to find happiness in the end even if they're all gone and this is point three not particularly that it's weird so this this entire segment really got to me the the mood of it is just it's very emotionally intense because you are getting these areas so full of of these shades just begging for death or or consigned to it um and you know you meet the dragons who are who are so weary of war and strife that they simply cannot bring themselves to do anymore and and just hope to just be obliterated one day you meet the Aya who became so advanced that they learned of the inevitability of nothingness and decided that well we're, our work is done here. Time to figure out how to die. You meet the Omicron, who 
you know, classic Alexander the Great stuff conquered until there were no more worlds to conquer and they wept and their main and strategic strategic intelligence kept the entire planet on standby until they all rusted away and each and every one of them block your way and and the final area which is just simply known as the necropolis is a world that was once filled with life without any trace of it left complete silence nothing but dust Mm -hmm. and like jars yeah literally the remnants of probably just weapons of mass destruction of some some sort because everything is just covered in a fine layer of dust and there are a few different uh parts where it's like you know if it wasn't all covered in a fine layer of dust you could imagine that people were sitting here just a second ago you know it's sort of a feeling of like the the black rose calamity in a way like a calamity that comes and essentially leaves no trace that it ever happened to begin with it's just everyone's just gone and astinian challenges the dragons uh with the idea that no midgard stormer escaped and he found a place where dragon kind could not only live but flourish and yes there was war and strife but together we overcame it and your indolence is insulting to them yishtola and yorianje reject the idea that these mysteries just because someone else believes they have solved the mystery of life means that no one else should be allowed to continue on with their search that that just because one answer has been proffered does not mean you can find another. Grahatia, uh, that's the one that he's the one that really got to me the most because, of course, what he does before he sacrificed himself is that he, I, I hate it when he does this, he asks you to make a promise. And whenever he says that, you know he's about to fucking do some shit. And he says, I want, I want to travel the world with you. I want to truly see Eorzea as you see it. And then he, and then he goes up to this. Uh, this this omicron like intelligence which is which has abandoned its its mainframe to exist as as this wandering machine and just wait, waits for its world to die and he says you know you you believe that there's nothing left of of your souls in these metal shells but i don't believe that like i i have i have changed my body and, and added it and added so much you know inanimate material to it and yet my my dreams and my wishes endured so strongly it allowed me to cross the rift between worlds uh the the one that got me to collapse is is the twins because as you it's not even their their exit although that also got me the one that it is you 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 there is the the segment where you are walking to the necropolis and you have the twins following you and you can just stop and talk to them about stuff and it's just like looking back on the past and looking forward to the future and of course alphano has has been horribly like affected by Asenian's death and alice has been the same for grahatia uh and there there's just this bit where you can talk to alice and she just says i wish i i there's nothing more that i could do that you were always doing so much to help us talking to the warrior lines i want just wants to be able to take this burden off your hands and help you and that i literally just had to sit there for about 15 seconds getting myself together yeah it's it hits hard but oh man alice is 
by a, a really broad margin, my favorite of the Scions. I, I find her journey really compelling. I find uh, her performance is really compelling. And there's... What ends up happening in the end in the in the Necropolis is that Alphano realizes that despite no one being here, someone is still wishing for this place to exist. And of course, it's Medion. She is you know, willing it into existence, and they have to counteract her emotions, which is going to take a lot of doing. It's going to require both of them. And he reveals this plan, and Alice knows that he's right, but goddammit, she's not willing to accept it. And I think that the, the performance of the scene where this happens is one of the strongest in the whole game and i think it's very strong in english but i think in particular i i've played through the entire game on japanese and um there there's a lot of merits to both uh performances by both of the voice casts um but i think that the performance of this very specific scene in particular is incredibly moving and deeply deeply convincing uh alice's voice actor is barely able to choke her lines out she just so much bile and tears she's fighting through to actually get out anything that she's saying it is it is such a deeply affecting moment it's like it's it's very very hard to sit through in a way that is it's very it's very strong it's very strong i would recommend if if you don't watch any of this game in sort of its its original japanese voice acting i i would i would strongly recommend if nothing else going back and watching that scene in particular because that's like it's it's the kind of thing where I had to just I just had to stop playing the game for for maybe twenty minutes. I just had to kind of recompose myself. It was it's ve- it's really 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 quite intense. So the twins sacrifice themselves. They 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 tell Meteon that they will never like accept this fate for them and for the Warrior of Light and all of the the various people of Ethereus because even if life is suffering, even if you know there will life is ultimately meaningless it is up to the person to find meaning in their own life and 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 meaning in in the friendships that they make and that is that is ultimately their stand Uh, and and they 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 create this stairway of light which leads you up to the very precipice of meteon's nest and uh you you walk through the shades of all of the people of the past you hear the voices of, of so many characters just just reminding you of what it is you're you're walking towards and of course the with every sacrifice the background music for the area becomes more and more complete uh it, it is it is i believe this was in the launch trailer it is a very somber slow vocal theme yes uh, it's, uh, it's called close uh, in the distance and it's a beautiful beautiful song and so by the end when you're walking up this stairway the the song is is playing in the background as, as you are as you are slowly making your way up to the peak of this cliff where you find meteon and she tells you it was all for nothing there is no way that you can reach 
my nest. It is my nest is above you. This dead star holds so much sorrow, and you will never be able to touch it. All of your friends died for nothing. And of course, you know that if you wished, you could summon them all back with the the crystal of of Azim. But Yishtola warned you that if you do that, Ultima Thule would collapse. The way all of their progress would be completely undone. Because it is the weight of their conviction that is holding this place together. Um, and Meteon knows this and says, "You are you, there is nothing you can do, so just submit to Oblivion. Um, but the Warrior of Light is unwilling to do that. And so what happens is you use the Crystal of Azim to summon not the Scions, but the souls of Emetzelk. And Hythlodeus. Oh yes, it is. This is this is one of many moments where I just sort of said "holy shit" out loud because it is it's incredible. You summon these two fucking bastards, and they they show up and they ah, uh, it's it's a it is a beautiful scene. Like they, it's it's sort of a victory lap for for these two. Just their their beautiful send off in the end and. The first thing Emmett Selleck says is, I can't believe how mad I am that you were right. Yeah, he's... He's like, you... He's so mad. He's so mad that you were right. He is so irritated that not only were you right, but also uh, that Vinat's plan, like, very clearly sort of had all of this in it, at least in some capacity. And he's like, ah, goddammit, she was right, too her she's just smugly gloating in the in the life stream i can feel it from here and so what they do is they create a field of elpis flowers uh around meteon around the peak of well specifically hill. specifically what they do and this is this is the really really beautiful thing is that they give you their ability of creation magic they tell you you know imagine whatever it is that is going to provide a path forward that's going to resolve the situation that's going to allow you to reach median whatever that is hold it in your mind's eye and we'll make it real and they do emmett selk snaps his fingers and a field of rainbow elpis blooms uh fills the entire area you're standing on and uh, so this relates back to something we skipped over. So Hermes and Medion, you know, they're they're very good friends. They talk a lot. And one thing Hermes told Medion is when when you come back from your your journey through the stars, uh, I will I, I will give you anything you want, anything at all. And she's like, I what about a, a beautiful flower? And he's like, I would love that. I'll give you a beautiful flower for your return. This is this is point four, because Medion just falls to her knees and begins to weep remembering hermes and like this this one gesture of of the elpis flowers uh breaks through so much of the pain and sorrow that the metia have absorbed into this egg this sadness egg um and she reaches out to you um and opens the way she cracks the shell and allows you know lets you 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 sort of reach into the nest um as this gesture because you broke through and then emmet Suck turns to you and says what the fuck are you doing asshole 
we are the we uh, this 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 flower field. It it is supplying more than enough dynamis to support this entire place. Why the hell haven't you summoned your gay little friends? Along? Yeah, he's like, unless uh, just in case that the 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 significance of this is lost on you, you can call your friends back now. It's like pretty hilarious. Uh, something also that I want to note about uh, the the way to the dead ends, which is of course the the level ninety dungeon opening, is. Um, the the dead star cracks open and what falls out is basically a giant tear uh that you have Uh to go walk into in order to of course go get medion it's mm, the the symbolism it's very subtle yeah i mean i and i was just i was smiling big and crying at the same time throughout this entire scene because the scions all return and they are all here to to go in one last time to save the world and Emmet Selk and Hythlodeus return to the life stream for good and and what I love about them is so so Hythlodeus you know he has that snappy line about oh this the story uh, so much pathos and and stakes but with a, you know just a, a good joke thrown in there you know as as he is one to do to be a, a little metatextual asshole but Emmet Selk turns to you as he's fading away and says I you know I truly, it truly, truly pains me to admit this, but like, I was wrong, and that is why you won the fight. I wanted to return to a past that I could never recapture, and your hope for the future is going to be the thing that saves the star. So go and save the world I yeah. love. Yeah. Well, he he says that, but he also specifically defends himself as well and i think this is a very interesting wrinkle to him as a character because he's like your actions have gotten humanity farther than anything we did and you are really the ones who are going to be able to save this star but my ideas are invincible and immutable Ah. My, my ideas were not wrong and i will stand by them for the rest of time the world that you're trying to save is not the world i loved but you know he has every confidence and belief that you're going to save it he is such an interesting character and and he that's that is why he is my favorite like even to this end after he has lost everything he is a shade staring down ultimate entropy he is like i will never throw away the things i fought for and it's just it's just like the scions never throwing away their conviction he's like no i will not say that i was like that i was i i I, you have beaten me you are the future but that doesn't mean that i was ever you know i i I don't still believe in that uh which is just wonderful it's uh, it's like themes themes. it's very much like themes and then you go so uh, the dead ends which is a great dungeon um and then after you fight through these these shattered shades of all these dead worlds you know and a water world just destroyed by horrific plague like a zombie goo plague a a ultra mechanized world that destroyed itself in a pointless yeah it's sort of a terminator situation also they uh made ten thousand peacekeeper robots that all decided that peace means there's no humans left so that was that was a great decision on their part and finally, a, a a pastoral, beautiful wonderland where the people have become so advanced that all of the pleasures of the world are dead to them and they crave only death. Um, 
And it's like these kind of these three things are kind of almost these visions of what Aorzia could be. The the ultra mechanized world is clearly like, what if th- this this might be what would happen if the world was united under the Garlean banner? And the the final area is clearly like this is what the ancients might have become if they were if 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 the world hadn't been sundered. Yeah, exactly. Um, they even have the same sort of robes and masks sort of deal that uh, the ancients have, just, you know, different masks. Uh, and so you, you, you fight your way through the dead ends and you reach the very pinnacle of, of this nest where Meteon reveals the, the, her true form, the, the coalesced suffering of the, that all of, all of her sisters have been absorbing, the end singer. Um, and almost immediately nearly kills the scions. Yeah, her her form here is she's hucking planets. Like she's just throwing planets at people. Yeah. Uh, the, the the scale of of power here is like a little bit unbalanced and the scions nearly bite it entirely. You know, you manage to save them at the last minute by using these little teleporters that Mumbrita's parents developed, you know, for like space exploration like hey, if you know, shit gets hairy, press this button, you all get teleported back to the ship. You know, pretty pretty standard stuff. So so you save all of Except them. Except yourself, because those teleporters, one button gets pressed, everyone who has one gets teleported back to the Ragnarok, the ship. So you throw it into the abyss, and, you know, I, there, there's a moment where Alice just says, you, fuck, you fucking asshole, don't you do this to me, uh, before they get teleported away. And so you're left facing the Insinger alone, and and you know she just says, "Well, uh, you've you've lost the only you, 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 these friends you have fought for for so long are gone. You're standing here alone. What's that? Is that Xenos's music? I hear. Yeah. So Xenos shows up as uh, as, uh, as Shinryu. Shinryu. Uh, he he shows up to Charlian, and he goes up to Kryle, and he's like, "Listen, I need to go f- beat the shit." out of the warrior of light right now and cryo's like oh god she she's like pretty concerned about how the scions are doing at this point she's had some echo visions of a possible future where the end times are coming uh no matter what which is making her a little concerned that they might be failing so she's like okay fuck all right xenos i'll give you a deal you go and make sure these people don't die and that they beat the end of the world. In exchange, you can do whatever you want. Sick. So yeah, he he becomes the platform for the boss fight against the Yeah, insane. you ride him um, into battle like on his head and then like every single boss theme and the whole game plays at the same time and it's fucking insane. It's like the most insane trial they've ever put in the whole game by a broad margin you play through the whole thing and it's crazy and then you you have to there's a mandatory tank lb3 that then gets rewound in time and she does it a second time but obviously you don't have an lb3 so you just die except you don't because everybody uh there's like a direct callback to the uh cut the arr cutscene where everyone is praying at the same time and they're sort of, they're literally lighting the way for you, and their their hopes and prayers are empowering you and also shielding you uh, from from harm and the whole 
fucking arena lights up with walls of light around it and Medion just starts literally flailing around like desperately trying to do anything but she's no longer capable of like really exerting that much influence over anything she's being completely overpowered by all the hope and emotions surrounding her and fucking the music goes insane and uh for the very first time in the entire x-pack the uh motif of hire starts playing uh completely unabridged and again this was one of the moments where i just started yelling oh my fucking god out loud while i'm doing the trial it was amazing and so you defeat the end singer and you know, her form crumbles away and you're left in this void. You're left in this constructed space completely flat. And here's where the last point where I just started bowling like a little baby happens because what happens is you you just find Meteon, just one Meteon, not not some monstrous bird nightmare as the end singer is. But um you you find her and, and she says the thing that all of her sisters were programmed to say you know all the, the greeting that they gave to everyone they met um let me let me scroll back to our dms to find it um she 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 says greetings i uh, my name is, is meteon and i i would i would like to be friends i wish to hear your words share your feelings and know your thoughts and she holds out a hand the uh the warrior of light just so very gently takes her hand and closes their eyes and just shows her what they they love and what they cherish and what they live for just this the 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 the, the final boss yeah you do you beat the final boss in a big crazy anime set piece this is true but the actual way the world the, the world is just saved through simple human connection just kindness just just the the the, the, the delicate the, the, it, it was the delicate way that the warrior of light just holds Medion's hand just cups you know one hand on top one hand on the bottom and just gently holds it just crumbled me it's it's a beautiful scene and I, I really especially love the line where she's like reflecting on the emotions that are flowing into her from you and you know she says that what Hermes was looking for was on Atheris all along. You know, the why why continue to live? What is the purpose of it? Why, in a world of suffering, does one continue to hope? You know, the answer the whole time was was there on on the planet that he came from. You know, he didn't have to go and reach for the stars to find that answer. It... it exists in the heart of of all of humanity it's just life it's just finding meaning on your own with the people you care about like there there is no answer to that question there is no singular answer it cannot it cannot be quantified it cannot be qualified it is it just is um which is just a great and yeah all of this is yeah it could be cheesy and bullshit but it just all works so hard like yeah like it is cheesy it is incredibly cheesy but it really makes it work and i think such a big portion of what makes it work is the weight of everything behind it i think if endwalker was a game completely isolated from its context 
I don't think the emotions would resonate quite as strongly. I think that a lot of this would sort of feel flat. And that's the take that I've actually seen quite a lot of people have, right? People who didn't really engage with the game prior to Endwalker, who maybe skipped through the story or otherwise... Well, okay. Listen. All right, listen. Here, here, Here's my thing. If you level skip to Endwalker, I don't care about what you have to say about Endwalker. You, you, I understand you have to play a lot of game to get to Endwalker and understand it and, and feel it right. I understand it. But listen, you cannot... Endwalker is not an isolated thing. It is not a game you can pick up and play. It is the capstone to 11 years of, like, just this singular project. It is It is the culmination of decade over a decade of hard work and and emotion poured into this thing and you fucking level skippers have no place in my life -uh. no no sir get them out get them out of here but i i think you paid more money to skip the story yeah it's it's uh yeah but but i think i think it is it's it's important to understand you know why people who do that feel like sort of broadly like Endwalker is very disappointing to them and a story they have a hard time like really feeling any attachment to. And it's because Endwalker is structured as sort of the complement to a meal. It's like, it's a wet, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's it's a beautiful fancy dessert at the end of a several course meal and you know maybe some of that meal wasn't all that great you know maybe you you didn't really like the asparagus or whatever but you know at the very end it's been constructed in such a way as that it plays on all of the components that came before it to try and sort of build to a satisfying conclusion uh if you just skip straight to the dessert then it's probably gonna seem kind of flat and kind of small and not really like it's contributing all that much you know you're like well yeah it was okay but i don't really understand why you know it's it's like this and i think that's an important component it's maybe its greatest weakness as a story is how reliant it is on its background to function but in a lot of ways that's also the story's greatest strength and kind of coincidentally that's also sort of the message of the story that both humanity's greatest weakness and greatest strength is its connection and its baggage that it holds um for for each other and i i think that's kind of fitting that as an expansion it kind of has the same restrictions and same benefits yeah and i mean we could talk more about other stuff but obviously this is not meant to be a comprehensive analysis of endwalker this is just our our feelings about it after the end and i i talk about everything i wanted to the the story ends um and you you are hor- you you fight xenos to the death he dies we talked about it yeah, already I, I will say one thing that if i have one genuine complaint about endwalker one thing that i really really wish was an option presented to you as a player um the xenos solo duty at the end should have been optional 
I think that there there should have been the option to simply walk away. And I think that would have actually presented a really interesting sort of deal with the end credit sequence, because of course the end credit sequence is you go back like 99.9% of the way to death, and everyone's really royally pissed off at you for it. Um, but, you know, mostly just happy that you're alive. Um, and I think that would have been kind of cool if that was like, you know sort of in stark contrast to you choosing to leave him behind to just sort of decay at the end of the universe in sadness uh, because he never is going to get what he wants and you go back to the ship and you get like a very slightly different sort of start to the end credits. I think that would have been an interesting contrast and it would have provided an angle that Stormblood Xenos never allowed for the player um because because endwalker on the whole is very good about allowing you as a player to feel like your input on your character means something your interaction with the story makes a difference and to the game's credit in this regard i think that your three options of responses to xenos uh, before that solo duty, do at least give you some leeway here. You know, you can just tell him, I'm tired of your shit. I'm going to rip your head off. You know, you can agree with him and be like, you know what? I can't deny that. I love to a challenge for challenge's sake. Or you can just completely no-sell him and make him really sad. Um, and it's nice that those options exist, but there should also have been the option to just walk away. Like, he's giving you that option. You should have been able to do it yeah it's it's one of the things where i think i i like the end credits too much to one for that option though because i think it is really just another character thing where you know depending on how you feel about your character they wouldn't walk away from that and xenos has just been such a goddamn bother the entire expansion he just keeps showing up and like i wouldn't put it past him to figure something out i don't know he's he likes to show he does up. really like to show so up you just you just have to keep you just have to stop him from showing up yeah um also that fight with that, the fight's pretty good i actually really like the solo duty i like how it's got kind of the dragon ball z element of like especially if you're a melee dps yeah if you're a melee dps i'm sure that that really adds like a whole different layer to it um of course i played it as red mage because i've basically played this whole game as red mage so my favorite class but um like yeah it's just the the solo duty is put together really well and i really like sort of the thematic elements of it i like the dbz angle to it i like the fact that it and i really really like the fact that it ends with just devolving into a bare knuckle brawl you're just smacking the shit out of each other with your bare fists like it's awesome oh that shit I'm a sucker for that shit when a fight, you know, you start with the cool anime fight and it just devolves into two people beating the shit out of each other, half yeah. dead. Ooh, it's great. It. And then at the very end, you get sort of like a kind of cross counter situation where you both have like the glowy fist and you just smack him so hard. He flops over, does like a full like 360 flip and then falls on his face. It's awesome. And then like, I, I really, really do like the way that Xenos's arc kind of concludes. I think that there's something to be said about the idea of the story sort of uh, reneging on him experiencing development, but I think in a lot of ways it's sort of 
more correct to his character for him to kind of not continue on that path. It's it's very difficult for me to imagine a Xenos who is self-aware enough to actually change as a person. And I think that there's a lot of things that would have had to happen uh, for that to have been a possible end space. Um, and that's something that could have been interesting, but I also think that Xenos being this maybe not foil necessarily to the main character, but this sort of dim reflection, this like tarnished half baked, you know, visage of what, you know, the player could have been if you didn't really care and you only did live for the challenge, I think is interesting. I think it's an interesting angle to take for him. Yeah. So, we will obviously touch on this in far, far more detail when we eventually get to Inwalker for Radio Free Highland oh, proper. Yes. Um, but for now, just the 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 story was it not only lived up to my expectations, it surpassed it. I definitely understand people's reservations with it, but also don't buy the goddamn level skip. <laughs> yeah, Fingers. don't don't buy the don't buy level skip. Just just play through the game. If you just don't play through the game, eat your meat. You can't have any. It's pudding. true. That's how it's it works. It's true, and if you can't have pudding, you can't be friends with Pudding Way, and that's that's just sad. Pudding Way. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's our messy, no notes, Endwalker thoughts and feelings. Just putting it all just, out. Just just sort of dumping it all on the table in... over the course of a cool three hours. <laughs> I nearly cried about four times. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, this is this is a this is an expansion that really tugs on your heartstrings, and and I love it. It's great. It's tell you what, it was so it was so nice of Yoshi P to free of charge after completing the expansion give you the orchestrion role that can make you cry on demand. Yep. So yeah, Inwalker and I. This is, of course, not the end of the story. The Scions have disbanded and they go their separate ways, but the promise is that there are more mysteries to unfold. I, I think maybe one thing that could happen is, you know, the old the old Fire Emblem Awakening. If you deal with the main thing and then a, just some mysterious conqueror from the southern continent decides, hey, I'm going to go fuck with those guys. Yeah, I... And just start some I, shit. I really like the way it leaves off, too, because I think it's very easy to fall into, like, the sort of power creep aspect of, like, okay, well, we had this bigger problem, the bigger problem, the bigger problem, the bigger problem, and eventually you run into, like, sort of the MCU's issue where it's like, well, you can only amp the stakes Thanos. up so high before they sort of become yeah. meaningless. So they've literally just crunched everything down to, like, Day one ARR, you know, the Scions are back to being a secret organization spread to the five winds, and you're just going to go on a normal ass adventure. And I'm pretty excited for that. I actually would really just like to have a normal adventure and just like go explore something. I'm, uh, I'm a little anxious and nervous about the idea of exploring uh -huh. the new world um, based on how... Hopefully they go less yeah. with that, but more... Yeah, he's he, Emmett does talk about the golden cities of the new world, but hopefully less that and more just 
you know, meeting the Southern continent on equal terms and figuring out what the fuck is going on. I think that's going to be the next one because he puts so much in- f- emphasis yeah, on Mer- that. Yeah, Mercedia like, hey, being... Do you know what's going on yeah, down Mercedia there? Yeah, being the next thing I imagine is the thing. I do... The thing is, I really do actually want to see the new world and engage with that and, like, maybe get, like, the ability to engage with, like, blue magic in a way that isn't, like, a stupid, like, kind of racist joke. But, like... Oh. Uh, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more Gosh. confident in the writing of the game now to handle something like that. I don't think the game could have even come close to approaching it, oh. you know, years ago. But now yeah. they might be able to do it. Uh, I've got reservations, but hopefully they pull it off. Well, regardless, we have quite a while to wait until we find out what's this next. This is true. Um, well, whatever 7.0 is, we will, uh, what is that, two years away? It's two years, every two years they release a big expansion, so presumably we'll be getting hints about what's going on, but that's for another time. I think I think by the time we get to Endwalker in the podcast, we will probably kind of know the direction. That oh yeah, by, by the time uh, we get to Endwalker and like finish the story, start finishing like the story proper, I imagine 7.0 will be well on its way to development. We'll probably even have like a teaser of some sort by that point. Well, we know it's called. It's it called is Thunder called Thunderhell. Hell, so we'll we'll see how Thunderhell all plays out. Well, that that'll be it from us for now. Uh, this is this wasn't really an Archon lecture. It's more like two teachers just running on about I don't know three hours of sleep rambling on, <laughs> at the, and the teachers pretty lounge. much it uh, just spilling everything all over the place. But yes, that that will do it uh, for us, and and we will hear whenever you hear this. I don't know where we're putting this out in public, but perhaps we we put it out now, or we wait until the very end of Endwalker to of Endwalker coverage to reveal it to the world. But wh- however you are hearing this, thank you for listening to three hours of just half. Yeah, th- thank you very much, and hey, hope you really enjoyed the expansion. We certainly did. Good night, everybody. See you later.